The text we're looking at today is Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 36. You can turn in your Bibles there if you do want to follow along. Before we get into the text, I want to frame this uh, message for you a little bit today. You can see what the theme of the, the sermon is. Why don't people understand Jesus? We're asking a really big, important question. Why don't people understand Jesus? And I want you to think about this question as we go through the text and study what Jesus has to say uh, in, in three ways. I first want you to think about somebody you know who does not believe in Jesus, who does not understand Jesus completely, would not call themselves a Christian at all. And I want you to think about how what Jesus says relates to that person and how you interact with that person about faith. Second, I want you to think about somebody who is a Christian, but isn't a Christian like you. Maybe it's because they're of a different denomination, or maybe it's because they don't seem to take their faith very seriously, even though they would call themselves a Christian. How does what Jesus says today relate to that person? And then finally, yourself. Because the truth is, very often, even we don't fully understand Jesus. Whether it's because he says something and we choose not to understand that thing, or he actually says something and try as we might, we seem to struggle with it, even we often don't understand Jesus. So what I would want you to do is, if you have a note sheet, maybe write down at the top of your sheet the names of these people, right? The person you know who does not know Jesus, who does not understand him, the person who ostensibly knows Jesus, but maybe struggles to understand him, and then, of course, yourself. So let's think through those three people as we study the text. I'll read it for us from Luke chapter 11. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, "'This is a wicked generation.'" It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The man of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. This is the gospel of the Lord. And like I said, we're going to study this question. Why don't people understand Jesus? And like I said, we're going to study it through the lens of those three people that you have maybe on your notes sheet. We're going to break the teaching today into three sections as well. Three things that are obstacles to people's understanding of Jesus. And this is, again, going to be true for all three of those categories of people I instructed you to think about today. We're going to talk about evidence, we're going to talk about arrogance, and we're going to talk about prejudice. So, uh, if you're following along in the notes, evidence is the first point, and we'll start there. As we start this text, we need to remember that this text is part of a longer text. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that I said that this section is really two parts. There are two challenges that are given to Jesus, and Jesus gives two responses to those challenges. Last week, we said the challenge was that he was driving out demons by the power of demons, and we talked about his response to that challenge. 
The challenge that he got, gets after that is in verse 16 of the text, we didn't read it today, but we read it last week, where it says, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And the text that we read is going to be his response to this challenge. But before we get into his response, we probably need to talk a little bit about the challenge itself. When the people ask for a sign from heaven, what are they asking for? I actually think sign is a really great word to describe what they're asking for. If you see a sign, you know that the sign is not the thing itself. It is simply a marker that indicates the thing, right? This sign is not the city of Toronto, but this sign indicates the presence of the city of Toronto. And as you look at the sign, while you know that that thing is not the thing, its validity testifies to the presence of the real thing. Or maybe to say this differently, if you're walking down the street and you ask some guy, which way to Toronto, and he tells you, and you walk a little bit down the road and you see one of these nice official green signs, you're more likely to trust the sign because it looks more official than the guy who just told you kind of the direction to go. So when the people ask Jesus for a sign from heaven, they're saying, give us some validation, something obvious that shows us that you are who you say you are that you are actually God, that you are actually the Messiah, that you are the one sent to be the Savior of Israel. Give us something that proves that to us. Now, the crazy thing about this request is that Jesus has done this already numerous times. I mean, if you're reading through the Gospel of Luke up to this point and you see the people ask Jesus for a sign, I think you have to step back and say, really? I mean, throughout this book, look what Jesus has done. In Luke chapter 4, he has had multiple healings and he's driven out a demon. In chapter 5, he has healed someone of leprosy and another person of paralysis. In chapter 7, he healed a sickness and raised a dead man. In chapter 8, he calmed a storm, healed somebody, drove out a demon, and rose another person. In chapter 9, he fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and a few fish, drove out a demon, and we even just saw at the beginning of this text last week that he drove out a mute demon. If you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you get to this point, your reaction to these people is, another sign? Like, really? Have you guys not been paying attention for the entire book, his entire ministry? He's been doing stuff like this that testifies to who he is. And yet, what do the people do? They say, another sign, please. This shows us something really interesting about evidence. And it's that disbelief is often not a matter of evidence, but in fact, a matter of inconvenience. Disbelief is often not a matter of evidence, it is often a matter of inconvenience. There was so much evidence for people to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But the belief in Jesus being the Messiah, being the Son of God, was inconvenient for these people, and so they avoided the evidence. Maybe as you think about the three people that I had you write on your sheet, you can start to see this happening in real life. There's evidence, it's out there, but very often we avoid it. And I think there are a couple different ways that we avoid evidence. The first is very much like the people in the text. We might say, there's not enough evidence. There's not enough evidence. Even though there is numerous bits of evidence throughout world history to the testimony of Jesus being the Son of God, come incarnate to die and rise again for our justification, there's not enough evidence. 
Usually when someone says this, what they're saying is, I haven't seen enough evidence. It's not that there isn't enough evidence, but they have chosen not to go search it out. They've done a cursory Google search, they watched some program on the History Channel, they watched a 20-minute YouTube video, they heard what their professor said one time in school, and that's about the sum total of what they think is the evidence for Jesus. There's not enough evidence is not something that somebody who has actually looked into all the evidence says. It's the response of somebody who finds the evidence generally inconvenient. Uh, A second way that this might happen is that they never define the evidence. They might know that there is some evidence out there, but they haven't actually thought for themselves or expressed in any way, what would be the evidence that I would accept? Like, what could actually convince me that Jesus is who he says he is? And so they'll just say, well, there's not enough evidence. And what they mean by that is, I've never even really thought of what the evidence would be that would convince me. What's really interesting about this is uh, very often if you would ask a person to define what evidence they would find acceptable, they usually actually want some evidence that we have. I remember a story from a a pastor who told me one time he was dialoguing with a a non-Christian and they said there's not enough evidence for the Bible to be true and for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so the pastor asked, well, what would make acceptable evidence for you? Like what, what could you have that would lead you to the conclusion that it is true. And they said, well, multiple eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection from people who both believed in him and who didn't believe in him. We have that evidence. That evidence exists. But that person had never thought about that before. They had avoided the idea that there would actually be evidence that would convince them. And so they never found that evidence. A third way we can see this happening is asking for unreasonable evidence. So you'll hear this if somebody says, I would believe in God if he would just like do an amazing miracle for me. Rip the sky open and say, you should be a Christian, then I would believe in Jesus. First of all, that's just unreasonable. That's not the God that we see in the Bible. That's not how he works. That's asking him to be something he's not, and therefore you wouldn't end up believing in the true God anyways. You believe in a God that you manufactured to act that way. But what I think is even more interesting is even if God did that, very often people would not believe him. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, he was once asked, uh, what would you do if God actually spoke to you and said, Richard, you need to become a Christian? Richard Dawkins says, I would believe I was hallucinating. You see, he could actually be confronted with unreasonable evidence and he had already decided that no evidence would be sufficient so he doesn't get any evidence that convinces him. There are many people, evidence is not the problem. It's inconvenience. It's the reality that if the evidence is true, then maybe I'm going to have to give up some things that I really like or I'm really comfortable with. I'm really comfortable with the way I use my body right now, the relationships I have with people, the way I spend my money, the way I spend my time, the fact that I think I'm a pretty good person. It's inconvenient to think that if Jesus is actually who he says he is, he might have a claim on those things. That he might actually have to tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. And so many people avoid the evidence. How might this happen to those three people that I asked you to think about? I think maybe the easiest person to apply this to is our non-Christian friend, right? Who, Who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You think to yourself, it's so obvious, Jesus is great, look, here's the evidence. And they don't understand. Very often, it's because they don't actually need evidence. They've just found the evidence to be inconvenient. And so what can you do? You could ask a question. A question like, what would be the evidence that you would accept? Or maybe you could ask them, why don't you engage with this evidence specifically? 
Maybe as you think about your Christian friend who struggles with some things about the Christian faith, you could see that they're avoiding evidence as well. There's some parts of the faith that they like, other parts that they don't seem to care too much about. Maybe a patient instruction with them. To say, I realize this is not easy to hear this, but I mean, can you just be honest with me? Is this what Jesus says? Because you look at these words, can you read it any other way? Maybe most importantly for ourselves, those of you who are Christians, who are here faithfully hearing God's word, isn't it true that sometimes we do the same thing? We avoid the inconvenient evidence of what God calls us to be, to do, and to say. We hear him call us to be in Christian community, and we say, well, there's not enough evidence for that. Or we hear him ask us to manage our money in a way that is generous to our neighbor and to the ministry of the gospel, and we say, well, he doesn't say that too much, does he? It's not that high of a priority. I mean, it could be any number of things, but isn't it the case that sometimes we just avoid the evidence? We hear God's word preached from our pastor, spoken to us by a Christian friend, read in our devotional life, and we say, yeah, but I don't really want to. See, often one of the reasons that people don't understand Jesus is that it's inconvenient. Another way to think about this is just to acknowledge the reality that everyone is religious. Every one of us is religious, even if we wouldn't call ourselves religious. Those of you who are in the room, most of you, I think, would say, I'm a Christian, but the truth is you're pretty religious about some other things, too. There are other things that you trust implicitly, some other things that you believe give you high good. You're not unlike those who do not call themselves Christians. Even though they may not go to a temple or a mosque or a church, they have very religious beliefs. These are the things that are ultimately good. These are the things that are always true. These are the people that I'm going to trust. These are religious beliefs. And part of our exercise in bringing people to understand Jesus is going to be acknowledging that. That in some sense, we need to deconvert before we convert. That in some sense, we need to show that the religion that these people are following is not true, is not beautiful, does not work before we can say, look at something true and beautiful that does work. That's Jesus. So again, as you think of your friends, those who are Christians, those who are not, or even yourself, Ask yourself, are, those, are there some things that I fear or that they fear? Those might be my false gods. Or things that I love or things that I trust. Those are the ways that we are even unknowingly religious. And those things often lead us to avoid the evidence for Jesus. So, point number one, evidence. The second is arrogance. When these people ask Jesus for a sign, Jesus responds this way. This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. So Jesus references Jonah and says, you guys are asking for a sign, but you're only going to get the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? Well, as we read through the entirety of the New Testament, we find that the sign of Jonah seems to mean two different things, and they are outlined for us in the two places in the Gospels where Jesus gives us this teaching. Uh, If you look at Matthew's Gospel, as Jesus is teaching this, Jesus seems to make a reference more to Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. So, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah is called to preach to the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, who is, who is oppressing Israel, and he runs the other way, gets on a ship, gets in a storm, gets thrown overboard, and is swallowed by a big fish, eventually spat up back onto land, and he goes and preaches to Nineveh. 
As Jesus references this, he says in Matthew 12, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So for Jesus in Matthew, the sign of Jonah is that Jesus rises from the dead. He says, you want a sign? It's not going to be healing. It's not going to be calming the storm. It's not going to be raising somebody else. It's going to be predicting and then executing my own resurrection. That'll be enough sign for everyone. And you know this. If you've been around here enough, listen to my preaching enough, you know this is the centerpiece of Christianity. This is the thing on which our whole faith rises and falls. If Jesus is risen, then Christianity is true. All other worldviews are false. Jesus is God. Or Jesus is not risen. Christianity is the worst of all the religions, and we are to be pitied for our belief in it. Jesus says that's the sign you get in Matthew's gospel. But in Luke's gospel, he seems to have a different emphasis. He doesn't speak about the Son of Man being in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. He doesn't even include that. And I think it's because in the context of both this section and Luke's gospel at large, Jesus has a different emphasis. He's more focusing on the preaching. Right? Remember last week, we ended with this verse where Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The emphasis is on hearing God's word. And so how is Jonah a sign? Well, Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches and they listen, right? They repent. And Jesus says, because they repented on the last day, they are going to come and condemn all of you who do not listen to my preaching, because I am a greater Jonah. And I think actually the next reference that Jesus gives us even builds this case even more, right? The story of the queen of Sheba who came to visit Solomon. The queen of Sheba listened to Solomon's wisdom And she praised God as a result, and Jesus says that on the last day, she is going to rise and condemn this generation for those who will not listen to God's preaching. Now, as you hear these two stories that Jesus references, do you notice the similarity between the two of them? Of course, they both listen to preaching, but I'm thinking something else. They're both not Jewish. He references the Ninevites, Israel's mortal enemy who was oppressing them, who listened to the preaching of God, and the Queen of Sheba, who scholars argue whether she's from like Yemen, you know, the bottom of the Saudi Peninsula, or whether she's from Ethiopia, it doesn't much matter. She traveled thousands of miles to get to Jerusalem to hear Solomon. She's not an Israelite, and neither were the Ninevites. And yet they listened to the preaching of God's prophetic voices. And so Jesus' point in giving these references to the people who are listening is, they aren't like you, and they listened. I mean, think about this. If you're Jesus' audience, and you're an Israelite, I think, at least culturally, you have a sense that you're special, that you're more likely than most to hear the word of God and believe it, to know what is true and what is false from the mouth of God, to be able to recognize the Messiah when he comes. There's a certain arrogance about them. We're the people who will understand better than those people. And yet Jesus says, you don't understand. And in fact, here are two examples of people who shouldn't have understood, but they definitely did. Maybe to to say it differently, Jesus' point is to say, who believes and why they believe has nothing to do with them. It really has nothing to do with them. They might think it does, But God's word works where God wants it to work. It works among the people that he wants it to work. And he actually says just as much in John chapter 3. Remember this story? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus under the cover of night. Nicodemus is trying to figure out who Jesus is. And this is the section that has that famous phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. 
Just before that, in verse 8, Jesus says this. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Who believes and why they believe has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit, and this is why people don't understand Jesus sometimes. They have a certain sense of themselves or a certain sense of other people that leads them to the conclusion that whatever message is being communicated about Jesus cannot be true. Either they think of themselves too highly, or maybe they think of the person who is telling them the message of Jesus too lowly, but it clouds how they understand Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples of how this happens. First of all, we can do this on the basis of intelligence. We might be a person who says, you know what, I'm more highly educated, right? I, I read more, I listen to more podcasts on these things. I'm generally more aware of what's going on in the world. And you kind of seem like sort of a backwoods, hillbilly type person who doesn't really understand the way the world works. I'm smarter than you, therefore whatever you're saying about Jesus can't be true. Or you might say the inverse. Right, those, those people who just take all their time doing scholarly work on the Bible, they always come to these radical conclusions about the Scripture. Why can't they just have a simple childlike faith? I'm so much better than them. I understand the Scripture. Or we might do it, like I said, through education. I went to these schools. I listened to these professors. You didn't even graduate high school. Or maybe you didn't go to higher education. I'm a person who knows because I'm aware of all the things that are happening around me. So therefore, whatever you say can't be true. It's cultural awareness. You seem like a person who is sort of closed off to about half the world because of your ideological views. There's no way you can know the whole Jesus, or at least not those parts of him. How could what you say be true about Jesus when you're like that? It could be personality. I don't really like the way you talk. You're kind of abrasive. You're kind of harsh. Or you don't really speak with clarity and certainty about Scripture, so there's no way that you can be telling me the truth. Or maybe it's morality. A person who who does the things you do, you think you can tell me what Jesus is like? Like, when you drink like you do, when you speak like you do, when your family is a mess like yours is, when you post what you do on social media, you think you can tell me what Jesus is like? Or we're affiliated with certain things. You're going to tell me what Jesus is like? You're just a conservative. You're just a liberal. You're just a a Catholic. You're just a Presbyterian. You're just a Lutheran. Or vice versa. I can't listen to that guy. He's a liberal. I only listen to conservative voices. Or I can't listen to what those people are saying. I only read Lutherans. Don't we do this? Our affiliations define how we hear what somebody says. All these things are arrogance. They are seeing ourselves the same way the Israelites saw themselves. We're so much better. We're so much more capable. We're so much more likely to understand Jesus or understand the Messiah. Jesus says, that's not true. And that's good news. You might right right now be thinking of your friend who's not a Christian or your friend who is a Christian but sort of struggling, or even yourself, and you can see these things in them. But let me tell you, this is also where the good news of this text lies. That your faith, your salvation, does not have anything to do with you. You know, as, as Jesus says that to that Israelite audience, and he makes those references to the Queen of Sheba and to the Ninevites, those Gentiles who believe the faith, understand that we're included with that. 
And the majority, maybe the sum total of all of you sitting in this room are Gentiles. And you're hearing the word of God. And as far as I can tell, you're repenting and believing it. And and that's a blessed thing because the Holy Spirit chose to blow his wind here for you. And it's not because you're particularly capable or particularly intelligent or particularly moral or have the particular personality of a Christian, but simply because God is gracious. And so if you ever struggle, you struggle thinking, I, I couldn't be a Christian because of the things that I've done. God couldn't love me because I don't really go to church that often. God couldn't want me because of my past or the things that I think or the way my body or my mind work. It doesn't matter. It's not about you. Or even some of you who struggle with faith. You say, I think I'm a Christian. I don't know. I struggle with doubt. I struggle with with things I read online and I'm not sure. It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. In fact, the more often you look at yourself and think about yourself, the more you are going to find the darkness and despair that lies in your sinful nature. But the more your eyes rise to the cross where your Savior died for you, the more you will find the certainty that Jesus loves you, accepts you, wants you, brings you in, protects you, and provides for you for no reason other than his love. You are free from thinking that anything about you defines your Christianity. No amount of morality or age or socioeconomic status or ethnic background, nothing. It is the Holy Spirit blowing where he pleases that saves those who hear. So then finally, prejudice. We've had evidence, we've had arrogance, and finally we have prejudice. Jesus continues his teaching in verse 33 of the text by saying, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Okay, just to define what he's saying, he's just very basically saying in a lot of words, lamps work, right? Like if you have a lamp, you turn it on and it lights the room. That's what he's saying. So then he continues and makes an analogy. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. So he again says, your eyes are the lamps of your body. So they light the inside of your experience as a human, is maybe the way we would say it. But we have to make a couple definitional uh, examinations here to understand what Jesus is saying. The first is that when he uses the analogy of sight, he's really talking about hearing. That's the context, right? The whole context has been about hearing the preaching. And so he's using the eyes as a metaphor to talk about hearing the preaching. So what he's saying is, If you can see me, in a sense, hear me, then there will be light in your soul. But if you cannot see me, you cannot hear me, then your soul will be filled with darkness. So you have to make that that connection. And then secondly, when he uses the word healthy, that word healthy uh, is a very interesting word. Uh, the, The glosses there in the lexicons I gave you, single, like singularly focused, sincere or without ulterior motive. That's what that word means. We think of healthy and we immediately think of like, well, I, I have like a, a body that's running the right way. And there's a certain sense in which that is true, but I think this definition helps us. Because what is he saying? He's saying you have either healthy eyes or unhealthy eyes. He doesn't say you can see or you're blind. He says you have healthy eyes or unhealthy eyes. So you can see clearly or you can see, but your sight is blurry. 
Maybe those of you who have cataracts, you know what this is like, or if you have a really strong prescription on your glasses, you know what it's like to take the glasses off and try to navigate your house, even though you know where everything is. He says that our seeing or our hearing is the same way. We see or hear Jesus clearly when we have no ulterior motive, when we simply come to him and let him say whatever he says. But we are, in a sense, unable to see him clearly if we come to him with an ulterior motive, or we might call it a prejudice. If we come to him with a set of assumptions that flavor or are a lens through which we take in the information of Jesus, we are not going to hear him clearly. So, then Jesus says, see to it, then that the light within you is not darkness. And this phrase, see to it, is really powerful. It's a thing that Greek does really easily, English struggles to do, but it's the idea of a verb that continues to happen. So when he says, see to it, he's saying, see and keep on trying to see that the light within you is not darkness. And we'll unpack that a little bit later, but I want you to see that in the text. And then finally, he says, therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part is dark, it will just be, be just as full of light as when a lamp shines on you. And what he's saying there again is that if you can see clearly, you can hear clearly, your light or your soul will be filled with light. So, to fill in a blank, to summarize this idea, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the way you look at him determines what you see. If you come to him with a certain set of assumptions or ulterior motives, a thing you are looking for in Jesus, you will not see him clearly. But to the extent to which you can look at him clearly, let him say what he says and trust it, then you will see him clearly and your soul will be filled with light. So how might this happen? Well, there are a number of lenses we might have as we look at Jesus and his message. We might have questions about the Bible as we read it. I mean, what is the Bible? I mean, how you answer that question is going to flavor how you hear the words of Jesus. Is the Bible a man-made document that has been transmitted over thousands of years and has been corrupted in different ways? It's going to change how you read the story of Jesus. Is the Bible God's word inspired from start to finish? That's going to change how you read God's word. Is the Bible a true document historically, but it's not inspired by God? That's going to flavor how you hear God's word. All these things are going to be lenses, and they're going to change how you see Jesus. Or maybe you have an assumption about what God is going to do for you. You come to the story of Jesus, but you kind of expect that Jesus is here to make you happy. It's going to change how you see Jesus. Or you think Jesus is here to give you some inspiration. It's going to change how you see Jesus. You think Jesus is here to tell you the truth about your life. It's going to change how you see Jesus. You think that Jesus is going to give you a message of peace. Well, it's going to change how you see Jesus. Or maybe another question you might ask is, what role does God play in my life? If I come to the scripture thinking Jesus is going to be sort of an assistant, he's going to help me with the things that I'm trying to do, it's going to change how I see Jesus. If I come to the scripture thinking Jesus is the son of God who is going to take over my life, it's going to change how I see Jesus. Or maybe which teachings are hard for me? I come to the scripture with a certain set of cultural or personal or sociological assumptions about what morality is. When Jesus says things about certain topics, I'm going to be a little bit allergic to that. When Jesus talks about human sexuality or about my relationship with government or my relationship with money or the way I plan my schedule or where I work or how I have relationships, any number of those things might be tough for me and they're going to flavor, they're going to be a lens through which I see Jesus. And so think of those three people that I asked you to write on the top of your sheet. What are the lenses through which they're looking at Jesus? 
Are they looking at him as just a historical figure, a great rabbi, a good teacher, or are they looking at him as the son of God? It's going to flavor how they hear what you say and what they read in the scripture. For your friend who's a Christian, but maybe not your denomination, or maybe struggles with their faith sometimes, what are the lenses through which they're seeing Jesus? How can you help them see clearly? And then for yourself, are there things that Jesus says that don't make sense to you because of some assumption you have about how life is supposed to be, or what you want to do with your life? rather than asking Jesus to define for you what are the standards and how I live? Any number of these things can affect your understanding of Jesus. And so three things, evidence, arrogance, and prejudice. All things that stand in the way of the devout Christian and the non-believer understanding Jesus. So what do we do? Well, first we repent. And we admit that we don't understand Jesus. That the lifelong Christian struggles just as much to understand Jesus sometimes as the brand new person to the concept of Jesus. That Jesus at some level is completely ununderstandable because he is different from us in a fundamental way. He is not a corrupt human being, but he is God Almighty. He is eternal when every one of us is definite. He is all-powerful when every one of us is incapable. He is all-knowing when some of us forget where we left our glasses. God is different than us. And so we're not going to understand him. And the first thing we ought to do is say, I don't understand. And then thank God that Jesus understands you. That being a Christian is not about anything about you. Your intellectual capacity, your morality, your background, your family, your ethnicity, your money, whatever. It doesn't matter. God understands you. And God saved you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. And so then, in that freedom, we can see to it. Remember I said that's what Jesus said. He said, see to it that the light within you is not darkness. Keep on trying to see clearly. How do we do that? I think there's a couple ways that we can do it. The first is to ask. I think so many of us have decided how we're going to see the world, and we are afraid to ask somebody who is different than us what we don't see. I think if any place can accomplish this, it's Cross of Life in Mississauga in 2024. Because you look around this room, there is so much diversity. Whether it is a diversity of age, or a diversity of gender, or a diversity of ethnicity, or a diversity of Canadian-born versus immigrant, or a diversity of lifelong Christian versus brand new Christian. I mean, there's so many people who are different than you in this very room that you can ask about and say, what do I not see? I'm filling the blank. I'm a boomer. I'm a Gen Z. I'm white, I'm black, I'm an immigrant, I'm a natural-born Canadian. Like, help me understand what I don't see because I come with a certain set of assumptions. And the other Christians here will love you and they will, they will appreciate that you asked that question and that they can help you to see Jesus more clearly. Secondly, if you're a little bit more introverted, you could read. <laughs> there are all sorts of books on this. If you want the absolute best book on how to identify your cultural assumptions, Charles Taylor, our friend, a Canadian from Quebec, wrote A Secular Age, which is the best book on this topic, I am convinced. It is also a tome. So if you're not somebody who really wants to read a lot, maybe Charles Taylor isn't for you. But for some of you, Secular Age, that's a book you should pick up. For those of you who are a little bit more cursory readers, though, maybe the best author that I've found for the layperson is Dr. Timothy Keller. He's a pastor from New York City, um, just died this past year, but he uh, wrote numerous books and he has a really great sense of how to apply God's word to the cultural assumptions that we have, particularly as Western people. So you could read to see your cultural assumptions. 
And finally, you should find space to think. I mean, so much of our life is just fast-paced go, and we don't think about anything. We just do whatever we have been told to do by our assumptions about life, by our boss, by our family, by the way we were raised. We've never taken the time to say, why do I even do that? And say, is that healthy? Is that God-pleasing? Does that bless my neighbor? Does that make space for me to abide in the grace of Jesus? Now, I don't know how you're going to do that. That's your schedule and your thing to figure out. But I think if we don't have the space to think, we will never be able to examine the assumptions that we have about Jesus and his message. So here's what Jesus says. The same thing that we got from last week, we get again this week. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and hold on to it, who take that word and continue to examine it, trying to find with as great clarity as we can what Jesus says on his own terms, understanding that the word will work, the spirit will power it, and that our salvation is never dependent on us understanding it in the first place, but on Jesus dying for us. Why don't people understand Jesus? They're sinful. But Jesus died for sinful people. So let's trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, on the, the pages that are held in hands right now or in the minds of us, our people who we love, who don't understand you, give us opportunities to speak truth to them to help them see their assumptions about the world, about their evidence, or even themselves. And for us, who also struggle sometimes to understand you, even though we believe in you, give us the clarity, give us the clear eyes to see and to hear the message that you give us in the scripture. Drive away our assumptions about ourselves, the world, and the scripture. Do it through our Christian friends, through the preaching that we hear regularly, and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that all in your name. Amen.